You're listening to Were You Still Talking? They pump out your blood and they pump in a, a new batch of blood and all of it is the blood of children. All the big stars are going to be on TV now. I mean, it's just the way it's going. Your role, I think, will be played by Brad Pitt. What'd you wear? Uh, I wore my loincloth wrapped around my feet. Are you going by John today? And that's absolutely true. You feel it in every cell in your body. Yeah, you can, you can bend the truth and bend the visualizations no matter what your political affiliation. You could have an alpaca. My a, a girlfriend's daughter recently got married and they had llamas or alpacas at the wedding. A recording room. They recorded uh, a couple songs in the kitchen of Rumbo. So, wait, you, you, you microdosed before this, right? What? Hey, welcome back. This is Joel Albrecht again, and you are listening to Were You Still Talking? And today on the show, I'm going to do the introduction a little different. I'm going to let my guest take over because he has his own podcast. And his resume is so long, I I'm just not sure which parts to pick from. So today on my show, I have Brian Gillette, and he is a podcaster. And well, I'm going to let him take over and introduce himself, to, uh, even if you, want, if you want to talk about a little bit about your podcast or just about yourself. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And uh, who are you again? Well, thank you, Joel. <laughs> My name is Brian Gillette, and I am the creator of a podcast called Beyond Race, which is about racial issues. Um, I have a co-producer. Her name is VJ Smith, and she also co-hosts with me. And we do a weekly podcast about very sensitive racial topics. There is pretty much no place we won't go. Um, she is black white male um i also happen to be gay and she happens to be straight um i thought that the introduction of the podcast would be really interesting from both a black and white perspective because from my vantage point a lot of white people are afraid to ask racial questions unless they're really stupid racial questions to a black person you know they everyone steers away from the really sensitive topic things so i thought you know what let's let's take the proverbial um lid off the can and go for it and part of our mission is to educate everybody and the other part of our mission is to show that you can have differing opinions you can say, oh, I don't believe that at all. And you can do so in a respectful way without temperatures rising, which, um, you know, if you look at Congress, uh, there is no other way. <laughs> right. So, yeah. so I bet we've been doing that since October. Um, like you mentioned, my resume is long. I am also a singer. I was operatically trained. Um, didn't really end up having a career because I actually fell in love and decided I did not want to travel um, and be on the road and sacrifice a relationship that was more important. So um, I also teach um, voice. I also do vocal coaching. And I am now getting into producing um, after being a project manager for a very large entertainment company 
where I got laid off after 30 years um, because of COVID. Oh, I'm really sorry to sorry about that. A very large entertainment company that starts with D. And <laughs> <laughs> well, we can talk about it. I mean, you know, hey, I, I, I worked. You. I, I worked for Disney for 30 years, mm -hmm. um, and um, I was project manager and um, loved it for the most part. And was not too surprised I got laid off, to be honest with you. But, um, you know, I, I think I had reached a point anyway where I was thinking about other avenues. And I'm, you know, I'm 55 years old and I was thinking, is this really what I do want to I want to do for the rest of my life? And the question was, I don't think so, because I think I have sort of run that course. Mm -hmm. And in a way, it was sort of like so maybe the push that I needed. Um, so I'm pursuing the podcast. I'm trying to increase my um, vocal teaching business, mm -hmm. and um, and I am dabbing my feet into the music producing world. So I'm working with a music producer in New York who produces original Broadway cast recordings, and we're seeing where that goes. I'm handling the business side. He handles the creative side. And so far, it's been a good, a really good match. Oh, that's great. I I had a guest um, a few podcasts ago that did an original um, Broadway recording. They, 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 they did a recording in order to try and get the play produced. But I thought that was pretty interesting. It, it was a, it was a, I didn't know people were still doing that. I mean, I know that's how Jesus Christ Superstar <laughs> was done a million years ago, but <laughs> um, yeah, I know they, you know, I know a lot of, it was usually a recording after the fact, but so I thought that was really cool. And it was a very interesting yeah, story. Yeah, I think, you know, what, what I'm finding is that more and more um, people are putting studio albums together as a calling card to get attention to their their venue, their um, their piece of work, and it tends to get investors' attention because they have something to listen to. They can sort of see it in their head then, and so we're working on um, I think no less than three concept albums at the moment. Wow! And yeah, um, and you know, hopefully that these productions will actually get a turn. And if they don't get a turn, what also what a recording also does is it helps um, sell that particular show, even if it didn't make it to New York, to repertory um, theater companies around the around the, the country mm -hmm. and um, for schools, et cetera. So um, community theater, et cetera, um, because it gives them an actual reference of what the show sounds like. Right, right. That totally so, makes sense. Yeah. And and I think you did a show. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, you were going to talk about my show. What was the question? Oh, oh, I was. I, I think you. I, I was going to say. Well, I, as I'm selling myself, I'm going. Well, you know, I think I. You, I listened to a show that you did um, about um, plant-based eating. And yeah, that Dr. was pretty Dean, recent. Yeah, and Dr. Dean Ornish, and um, I actually had a heart attack about three years ago. Um, so yes, I was 52 and wow. it scared the living daylights out of me. And, um, I ended up having a one artery that was 99% blocked 
and two other ones oh that were 98% blocked. And that percentage scared me like there was no tomorrow. So I signed up for um, Dean Ornish's um, cardiac reversal rehabilitation program, mm-hmm. which is very intense. And so I, I follow that diet to this day, actually. So I'll be honest, I still eat, um, I'm not plant-based. I'm definitely, uh, that conversation definitely helped swing me towards that way. The person I was talking to is, is the um, physician's assistant to the doctor I go to. So we mm-hmm. were talking in his office and he, my cholesterol is high, was what started that conversation. And he had a, um, he has a YouTube he has meetings basically with people to help them do plant-based. And so they're now taping those meetings since uh, because of COVID, I think. Um, and it was a very interesting conversation. He's done a lot of research. He was, he lost 60 pounds going plant-based and he was a, he's <laughs> an extreme athlete, basically. He was doing really long bike rides and these different extreme sports and still was 60 pounds overweight. And uh, um, he he had other health problems. So it it was a very convincing conversation, definitely. (laughs) Well, I will tell you, you know, the Ornish program is not for the faint of heart because it is, you had to conform to the diet. It is three and a half hours twice a week for, I think it's nine weeks, which is a heavy commitment. And you go and you start... Um, before the program begins, they you they take your numbers, they, you know, you take your blood work and what have you, and they mm-hmm. log what your numbers are going in. And then um, every day that you go, you start with um, an hour of exercise, and then while they provided your dinner, um, because this was like a late afternoon, early evening thing, and you obviously ate something that was from the Ornish uh, cookbook, um, which I will tell you I don't recommend. I much rather um, follow forks over knives. <laughs> that much better. Um, but I was already a cook myself, so I was once I understood what the concept was and what was good what versus what wasn't, um, I've been able to adapt an awful lot of recipes um, that I already had. So that's been that was really helpful for me. And then you go while you're eating and um, a dietitian spends that hour while you're eating with you and they talk about um, the diet, they talk about um, other health related issues, they talk about portion sizing, etc. And then you go off and you have um, time with uh, a group therapy session with a therapist. Um, oh, wow. And That's really talk good. About and you talk about your experience and what you're feeling that particular day or week or what have you, um, which is really, really helpful. And then you have a, an hour of uh, restorative yoga and meditation because the Ornish program's philosophy is that apparently he tried just a diet and the diet didn't really lower people's numbers as much. And then he tried diet and exercise. And then mm-hmm. when he layered in the, the meditation restorative yoga, n- people's numbers started dropping like crazy. And I will tell you that was my experience. In, by the time I ended the program, my numbers had dropped so low. Um, I was also diabetic, and I was no longer diabetic. And my 
um, heart ratio. Um, I can't remember what it's called now, but um, the chances of having a you know your chances of having a heart attack dropped mm-hmm. way below way below. My cholesterol dropped way the lowest it has ever been. My blood pressure was the lowest it had ever been, and you know proof is in hard numbers, and that convinced me that I just need to stay on this program because clearly it works. That's what. Well, that's, that's this is not a paid. This is not a paid endorsement for Dr. Dean Ornish. However, <laughs> that's what my guest kept saying. Is, yeah, the proof is in the numbers. Proof is in the research, and and you can't. Yeah, it's very hard. Uh, my problem is cholesterol. I have high cholesterol, and some of that might be related to um, uh, who you know my family, but n- probably very little of it. And the, the thing that really shocked me was that you can have zero cholesterol. I was like, what? You can't, and I, <laughs> I didn't know that. Was well, possible. plus there's, you know, there's, so, there's the yeah. good cholesterol and the bad cholesterol, right? right. And you know, my always- bad, my good cholesterol was always below normal, um, and they said it was, oh, that's a hereditary thing because that we did all sorts of things like tons of exercise and eating um, good cholesterol kind of foods and what have you, and nothing ever really raised it. So they said, oh, that's just a hereditary thing. Oh, that's really interesting. Wow. Yeah. Lucky me, right? So, (laughs) but it sounds like I could just do the yoga and keep eating what I'm eating from what you just said. Probably, but I I will, (laughs) but but, you know, I I will tell you the, the, the yoga and the meditation really, really help. And, you know, it's the easiest, it's probably the easiest to talk yourself out of during the day saying, I just Mm -hmm. don't have time. Right. Right. When you get into that breathing, even for, you know, 10, 15 minutes, it makes a huge difference. You just immediately feel a calm that you don't normally feel, even just slumping in a chair, resting. Yeah, I do. Uh, I try to do guided meditation as, as often as possible or just, just plain breathing. And it seems that mm-hmm. a big part, I mean, I'm. it's great that they include that because a, a big part of um, the, what I would think of as kind of an eating crisis in America is that people get so addicted to foods and they're eating, you know, for all the wrong reasons. They're, you, we're not just eating because we're hungry anymore. So it really makes right. sense to add something else that's that's going to change that, that's actually going to make you, you know, that's going to change your mind because that's a big part of what you have to change. I know people can go on all kinds of diets and all kinds of programs that they're really just going to stop doing as, as soon as, it, you know, they get to a certain point. And so that's that's really good that they include that. Well, I do think one of the keys to the Ornish program is that it's as long as it is, because, you know, if it had been a two or three week program, I probably wouldn't have stayed on it. But, you know, nine weeks, twice a week. Wow. Or, you know, three and a half hours each day. Uh-huh. That that's that's a heavy commitment, and and you know they say what twenty one days makes a habit. I think it is. So. Um, oh right. It was just long enough to get into a routine where it was easier to continue than discontinue. Yeah, that's great. So that helped. Yeah, that helps a lot. That That's awesome. That, and congratulations. I mean, it's always good to hear those stories. Thank I'm, you. Yeah. Glad you're still around, or, or we wouldn't have that great podcast. Oh, uh, I, I'm glad I'm still around, too. <laughs> <laughs> So you, uh, I listened to several of your podcasts. One of them was about biased in media. I thought that was a good show, um, and Thank it's an in, it's a very interesting topic. Um, 
it's something, what did I see recently? I don't remember where I saw this because, you know, so much stuff flashes. Speaking of bias in media, so much stuff flashes across our <laughs> our head, <laughs> our screens. Um, but it was about um, the fact that the right, the far right is um, so extreme and so, so overrepresented. And the far left is not really represented at all, which I thought was interesting. Um, I am a very left-wing person. I know, I'm aware that I'm watching media that's, you know, left-based. Uh, I'm more and more aware. I really love the point that you brought up the fact that in 1987, Reagan started ignoring um, certain, it, that was a law, uh, right? What, yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I, you know, you've caught me off guard. I can't remember what the law was. No, that's but, okay. But basically, it was. It's but but bas basically, it was it was a it was a law that um, put new that the that they public that the news or I shouldn't. I'm sorry. Blah, let me backtrack here. That the networks had an obligation to present factual, unbiased news to the public for the public's good. And he backed off of, of, of that and allowed broadcast networks suddenly to expose their new shows to ratings. And that uh, was the beginning of the downward slide. And right, and that's what we hear. I actually hear this complaint from real news people, you know, people that were, were if the few people that are still around from those days talk about that, how it completely changed when all the news programs had to be, had to also get ratings because, you know, in the ah. earlier days, they did not have to get ratings. Ah. They had to present the news, um, you know, even though they presented a lot of fake news like the moon landing and stuff, but they, ah. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to throw that in there. They, they, uh, <laughs> It was a different world. I mean, if and, and a lot of people today, they didn't grow up in that world. You know, there, there there's people that if you were uh, a teenager in 87, you don't even realize, you didn't see that shift. And, and it's so completely bonkers. Um, first of all, that news has to get ratings. That's terrible. News should, should not have to get ratings, but there's also the thing, the, um, the thing you can't ignore is that every news media outlet now has to, um, you know, they have to make a buck and they're competing with now thousands of different things instead of three news channels. There used to be three news channels and like five papers. I mean, that's exaggerating, but, but there was big city, there was a few big papers and then your local paper and they kind of ran the same stories and they were really well researched. Um, it, it took the, um, the people that brought down the Nixon administration, they worked on that for for months before they could say anything. Right. Because they would lose their job. If they had brought that out the day they learned about it, they would have been gone. And now they would now have to bring brought it out. And then, back, and then you backtrack and say, oh, well, this part wasn't right, so sorry. <laughs> and no one hears that. That's a thing. Yeah. yeah. No one hears that Ex part. Exactly. No one hears that part. Yeah. And that's what's so hard about the news. Um, yeah, but my, the point I was trying to make is that there's really no, there's no extreme leftist news um, or there's no extreme leftist opinions that really get out there. I mean, there's extreme right-wing well, opinions getting out there now. That like, depends who you, 
Joel, that depends who you ask. Well, of course, if you ask a far right person, there's nothing but extreme far left. Just ask Jim Jordan. Yeah, and they are they are hypnotized. I mean, they are being promoted that by far right media. Like they're literally being fed this stream of all the left wing news media is extreme. But nobody in the left wing news media is coming out and saying we need to kill gasoline. That's actually happening through commerce <laughs> now. That's literally happening from uh, what people want to buy and things like that. There's there's a lot of like the the extreme left wing idea of no, we really should be a socialist country. It's just not getting out there because, or we are, you know, the constitution is socialist. No one says that on their news. No one says that, uh, you know, uh, even even on what they call extreme uh, left-wing media outlets, no one's saying stuff like that because they know they would be attacked. They would be immediately attacked um, and saying you're absolutely, you know. So th that's well, what I, I always try I was going to say, I, I always try and point out that if the far right was really against socialism, then they wouldn't accept their social security check. Yeah, there's always that. Yeah, that's that's an old, <laughs> old, old, old argument. And, and they're happy to drive on the roads and fly the plane, fly in the planes. Um, you know, even, I, I mean, I don't think people realize how subsidized airline industry is and, and really gas. The reason that um, pickups are still the biggest selling automobile in America is because we don't pay real gas prices. You, know, you, you can't get gas oh, for these exactly. prices uh, very many places. Civilized places mostly are, have a completely different structure for how they price their gasoline. We subsidize the heck out of it. So, you know, things like that is... Uh, is farming all, is another one. Yeah, farming is another big one. And, you know, it's if we didn't have subsidies like that, uh, and actually pay farms for not bringing in a crop certain years. Um, that's got to be one of the most socialist ideas you could think of. <laughs> yeah, but they don't want you to talk about that. <laughs> they don't want you to talk about that. I know. So I, I shouldn't talk about that. Um, they want you to talk about yes. they want you to talk about how evil vaccine passports are. Oh my goodness! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's so much easier, isn't it? So much easier. And uh, I mean, to me, the thing is, I'm barely noticing the little bots from the vaccine. You know, the the little bots that was injected. I barely oh, notice hey. them at all. It seemed, you know. <laughs> I don't. Except for the little alarm that wakes you up every day. You know, right? <laughs> That's it. And I keep starting to think that um, Rush Limbaugh was a good old boy. No. <laughs> oh, bite your tongue. <laughs> yes, I know. I should. But I guess that's my point is there's no Rush Limbaugh's on the left. You know, for that one, it doesn't work. Like you can't, somehow you can't scream out the left wing politics in the same way. <laughs> it doesn't make sense. Well, you know, it wouldn't make sense. <laughs> What I, what I find interesting about the right and the left, if we're going to talk about it, is the left has so many causes. Mm -hmm. The left wants yeah. to take care of everybody, which in the one hand is a great thing. That's it's sort of why I'm left. But you know, the right has one message that they drill home over and over and over again. And the left is never going to be on the same page because it's like, 
everything is important instead of just one thing or three things. And I, so I think that yeah. the, I've always been, you know, the, the right is very successful at their messaging because of that. I, in my opinion, I, I agree with that a hundred percent. I think that, um, that's just, I share that opinion. Uh, I see, especially in major campaigns, but I see it in local campaigns as well is the right wing will come out and say like one thing, this is who I am. I, you know, I support, uh, free, free speech and everyone having a gun. That's it. Period. The end. And the left left wing candidate will come out and say, "Well, if we're going to stop global warming, another thing we have to work, you know, they'll they'll tell you they'll basically give you a real message, which is too long right. for for the for the attention span and, and, now." And people start tuning out, and it's like, "Yeah, people yeah, start yeah, yeah, yeah." Tuning yeah. out immediately. It's yeah. It's it's like all the criticisms of our our current president. Um, and not that he's not not that he does not that there aren't things to be critical about, but. He, um, uh, well, the best thing about it is that I can watch him speak and he speaks in sentences and things like that. But I don't think people on the <laughs> right are going to watch him speak because he's, he's um, speaking in sentences and stuff like that. You know, he's not using sound bites. He's not, he's not using a language that everyone understands anymore, which is unfortunate. Except my understanding of that he has an um, incredibly high approval rating, even among um, moderate Republicans. So that's actually a good thing. He's actually doing yeah. what he said he's going to do, which is, he is, know, which a is shocking. After the last four years, <laughs> it's, uh, I'm even shocked. And you know, I, I, I was he wasn't my candidate, but I was glad, uh, I was happy to vote for him. And um, I'm shocked at how much he's been able to get done. I shouldn't be, because when you have someone with that kind of experience in the in that office they can get a lot done i mean it's it's you know it's something that can happen so i shouldn't be that shocked um i mean the kind of things he's getting done is um uh taking down all all these insane policies and putting people in uh, in their in um in positions that weren't filled you know he's filling positions that should have been filled three years ago and you know little things like that um, but yeah, I, th I think it's pretty amazing the difference, which I wonder if the approval rating is partly based on, um, people getting checks in their mailbox. Oh, and that very well be because people are fickle. People are fickle. <laughs> but I will, I, <laughs> I will, I will say that he was not my first choice as a candidate either, but you know, anything rather than the the other guy the other guy yeah his name well, i i just don't even want to give him air time you know which is fine i'm, uh, I'm all for it yes <laughs> and and i must say what surprises me the most so far is that we're seeing a biden that i have personally have never witnessed before i mean biden's always gotten in front of the press and done all sorts of big goofs and gaffes and had to backtrack and what have you and tried to be everybody's friend. And so far, what we've seen is an actual real leader who actually does what he says he's going to do. And the fact that he's done so much already really, really shocks the hell out of me. Yeah, it is. So, it's it's kind of shocking. And I, again, I don't think I- In a good be. way. Yeah, in a good way. And it, it's really all it is is, is uh, governance, you know? <laughs> 
He's, he's covered What's that? <laughs> yeah. We didn't have that for four years. We didn't. It didn't exist. So, yeah, it's kind of bizarre. Kind of bizarre. Um, but let's get back to your show. Sure. Um, how did you guys get the idea to do it? How did you? How did you decide to? Hey, let's do a podcast. Well, you know, I. I've always been so I've been as you can tell very very politically motivated and I have a strong social conscience and if you are aware of or know about enneagrams they're social they're social indicators about um type of personality types um and psychologists use them um I am a very definitive type 1 which is called the um, the advocate. So I have a very strong moral sense of what's right, and um, the type one also strives for perfection and is constantly let down when they fall short of that. Um, you know, it's a vicious cycle. But um, the the social conscience part and the fact that I have a really strong sense of doing the right thing and what is right um, made me think about the whole racial topic. And it's an idea that I had been stewing on for quite a long time. And during the heat of, you know, I would say maybe from June of last year, 2020, um, I was really with the Black Lives Matter movement. I was getting worked up every single day. My blood pressure was going up. And I thought, I really need to do this. But what kept me from doing it was, oh, my God, this is daunting because I don't think I can do it all by myself. Mm-hmm. And I had a friend and um, who's based in Seattle. And we were having a lot of conversations about what was going on in the press and the media. And it was she's somebody that I could totally bare my soul to and and vent with and um we're fairly politically you know um even even minded and um so i said hey you know this is this is something i've been throwing around for a long time and um would you be interested in this and her initial reaction was absolutely not She said her response was because I wanted her to be a co-host because I thought, you know, just a white person babbling about racial issues is sort of meaningless, at least from my standpoint, that it only has resonance if you get other perspectives in it as well, um, because those are the voices that aren't being heard. And... She then came around and said, look, if you're really interested in this, I will do the sound editing for you. I will produce blah, 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 but I won't be on the air. And I said, hmm. And I had almost decided to take her up on that when she got a hold of me and said, you know what? I was talking to a friend of mine and and I need to go for this. It scares the hell out of me and I need to go for it. So, which was awesome. And so we started brainstorming ideas. Um, The ideas just pour out. I mean, in our initial conversation, we ended up with, um, I want to say, 30 episode ideas. (laughs) Wow, that's great. um, So, you know, 
I'm, I've never been one for a lack of something to say once you get me going. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to stop me. So uh, talking was not the issue. Um, I will say that it was a big learning curve um, doing research and, 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 and coming up with notes for it. So you mean researching um, guests or researching the topic that you're, re you're researching the topic because yeah. I wanted to make sure that I knew as much as I possibly could to bring to the table because if part of our our mission was to help educate people at large about these topics, then I felt an obligation to make sure that I knew what I was talking about. And so I research every single episode and I write out, um, I want to say maybe three to four pages of notes. Sometimes we end up using all of them. Sometimes we don't, mm -hmm. but they're, the notes are meant to keep us on topic, to make sure that we um, talk about all the main bullet points that we really want to hit that are really important to us. And then based upon what we say, we'll go off and we'll have a conversation back and forth. You know, she'll disagree. I'll disagree. We'll talk about it. Sometimes we go off on tangents, which is totally fine because you never know what's going, what kind of, um, what kind of jewel you'll, you'll, you'll uncover by going down, going down that road. So we have an awesome time doing it. Um, but I think it ended up being, it's a bigger enterprise than either one of us expected going in. I mean, uh, it's daunting enough setting it up, right? But keeping it up, I mean, we're at thirty-four episodes now. Yeah, it, <laughs> and it, I know what that's like. <laughs> Suddenly, <laughs> there's more to do. I I always thought, you know, well, I'll get through. I don't know, twenty. I'm just in my head, twenty episodes, and now it'll just roll. It'll just, you know, I'll just know what I'm doing. No. It's not working out that way. It's like there's more well, work. You know, As I get bigger, it's like there's more things I think, well, I could be doing this, this, and this. And, you know, wow. Yeah. So I, I can relate to that completely. Well, we both really would love to actually monetize the show. And we have not done so to date because... For us, it's a really sensitive topic because we're dealing with, out, with real people's lives and real people, very serious issues here. Mm -hmm. And we don't want to, I don't know, for the lack of a better word, sell out. So how we monetize is very important to us. And that's something that we still don't have a, a, a firm grasp on. Right, right. And... Um, we want to be able to grow our audience. And let me tell you, I, I think the biggest learning curve for me at all was just how exhausting keeping up with social media is. Yeah. It takes so much time. I had no idea. <laughs> it's really amazing. It, it really, it, I don't keep up. I feel like I'm doing social media all the time, but um, there are people that I've listened to, you know, for advice, uh, people who are very, very successful at doing podcasting and different things. And I mean, they, they really hit it hard. So this one person that I followed, uh, 
he posts three times a day. He actually posts on four, maybe four different social media sites. And every one of his posts has a lot of value. So people are interested in seeing, they're mostly just sayings of feel good sayings, but he spends <laughs> a lot of time on them three times a day, seven days a week. That's harder than it sounds. But it, you know, that sounds easy, but if you, it's not that easy. <laughs> What pe yeah, and what people don't realize is not just the posting, it's also, well, what what tidbit, what idea am I going to come up with to post? And right. does it need a picture? Right. And, you know, and Instagram is the big thing right now. So it's like an Instagram needs a picture, so, and then but it needs a certain size picture. And it, it just the whole thing just snowballs and it becomes exhausting because it's between Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and YouTube. And, and by the time, you know, by the time you list all those, it's like your head is it's spinning. Your eyes are yeah. rolling in the back of your, in, in yeah. the back of your socket because it's like, I don't have enough hours for this. <laughs> I, I actually went to a free <laughs> seminar called Influencer Summit. I don't want to be an influencer in any way. I just thought, you know, these people, I, the people were really good at what they do, so I thought maybe they'd have some hints. One of the best things I heard, uh, and I can't even remember which person said it, but it was, don't try to do five social medias at, at first, when you're small, like, you know, I'm a little small, I don't know if people know that, I have less than a million people listening, but uh, <laughs> they, uh, they said, if you if there's a social media that you're used to or that you like, just concentrate on that. And when that gets to where you want it, when that's grown to a decent size and you're getting reaction from that, then go to the next one. And well, I was like, whoa, that really makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. So you're not trying to get, you know, you're not trying to do Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and whatever the five new ones are this week. You just, if it's Instagram, okay, I'm gonna do Instagram. So I'm gonna figure out, well, what's Instagram need? What kind of, you know, what, what kind of stuff works there? And you know, I, that really made sense to me is, is um, shrinking the size of that a little bit in your mind. Yeah, I, you know, I, um, ever since I got laid off from the, my, um, my job, I went out and I found a life coach. And I am going to do a shameless plug here and, and plug Brett Shuford, um, who is an actor and runs Broadway Life Entertainment. He also has um, a podcast with his husband, and they do it's called Broadway Husbands. And, um, oh, that's great. And that was advice that he actually gave me, was concentrate on one or two and build that, um, because trying to tackle all of it all at once is just too overwhelming and i'll yeah. be i'll be totally honest with you if you see uh, a personality that is on tackling them all at once it's not them no they have people they have people <laughs> they have people they have you know they have assistants they have or they've paid a, a bot i've seen a lot of this i've seen a few of these from my guests where they bought a bot that posts for them and i don't know how they program that but it's very obvious because they will post something and they will get no response. And I think that's why, because people just don't respond the same to, to bots when they're, when it's right. not a real post, you know, it's, it's, there's somehow people get it or, or, or the followers have been purchased perhaps 
because you know if if you see someone who's worked really worked at it and they have thousands of followers when they post something there's hundreds of responses but i've seen other people with thousands of response of followers they post something there's one or two and i think well hmm <laughs> <laughs> well i i know for for my for our um show i have been reaching out to some univer local universities seeing just um if we can find a student who would be willing to do a free internship i think it's so, a really good idea some people have suggested that to me and i thought um uh, i just don't think i'm there yet but it <laughs> i'm big enough <laughs> when i'm big enough i think that'd be a great idea I, I mean i don't know how much i have to offer the intern but you guys have a lot more <clears throat> you've got a lot more going on so when you, do you guys do like really long, uh, you know, a couple hours and edit it down to an hour or, or yes. you do? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. We, we will record anywhere from two to three hours um, and then reduce it down to an hour or less. I've heard and, that's a really good way to do a podcast. That's what people... I well, don't you've heard that. Huh? I've heard that. <laughs> I, and I think it is. I, I just don't do it myself because I'm, I'm, I love the long conversations. And there is a certain place in the world for long-form podcasts. But I, one of my favorite podcasts now is um, uh, Revisionist History. Have you heard that? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. So the really huh. amazingly produced show. And, you know, that's, I think, 30 minutes about. And so the actual show is about 24 minutes. And, um, it, yeah, extremely, you know, extremely edited, like every every nuance and appreciate Well, based upon, based upon our downloads, we think our sweet spot is probably somewhere around 40 minutes long mm -hmm. um, because what we do, obviously, are very serious topics. Right. Um, our longest episode... We ended up splitting into a part one and part two on systemic racism. Um, and those, unfortunately, because everyone needs to hear this, but unfortunately, those are our least listened to because it's like an hour and a half of content. And right. It's heavy stuff. Yeah. And a lot of that um, also, I mean, I've spoken to some people who've been podcast podcasting since the 80s. And um, when you have guests, a big it was part a of thing it, in the eighties. Exactly. No, that's how long they've been podcasting. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> um, but a big part of interview shows is the inter is the guest. That's just the bottom line. So if people know the guest, you're going to get more downloads. If no one really knows the guest, it doesn't matter how amazing the material is. Um, and if the guest doesn't do something to help put it out there then you you'll just get less you know you'll get less it's it takes a while before it's all on you right i mean it, it, it's if you've got ten thousand downloads or more uh per episode then yes it's people are going to do you know then you're going to be rolling in it won't matter they're going to listen to any episode but at this point that's part of it too and i know what i listened to a part of that episode and it's a great episode um you thank know, you it's really yeah it's really good material it's really worthwhile stuff to listen to, especially for someone like myself. I I actually live, um, I'm white, in case people are listening to this, if you see the video, I am white <laughs> and, and living a little over 100 miles from what has been described to me by someone on the podcast, an Asian American, as the whitest city in America. 
Portland, Oregon is known as the whitest city in America, which I didn't know until very recently. So we have... Wow. Uh, yeah. So <laughs> there, there's a lot of ignorance here, and I don't mean purposeful ignorance, but just not not um, being exposed to other, other races and being in... Um, the problems might seem far away to a lot of people, even though they're not. I mean, we were the last state... Uh, in the union, I believe to um, to have a KKK, to have a um, you know. Wow. Yeah, okay. it's pretty shocking because Oregon seems like a very you liberal mean, state. If you think about Eugene you and mean, Portland, you mean until they all moved to Idaho? And, yeah, exactly. Well, they're still here. They're still here, and it, you know, as we saw lately, they're not. They're happy to come out and show their colors if someone says that's okay. So yeah, we there was uh, it was scary here last four years. It's it was mm -hmm. pretty pretty frightening, pretty eye opening. And um, you may have heard that there was some major problems in Portland, and who knows what that was about. Uh, I, I you know I still don't know because I wasn't on the ground. I don't know what these uh, demonstrations that they called riots what what actually happened there. It it, it sounds absolutely nutty. Just nutty. <laughs> well, the world was a nutty place these last four years. It was, and and is, and it still is. Um, and I'm just, I'm so glad that you are taking on um, the subject um, beyond race because you know it's a really important subject. It's something that um, I'm not sure anyone knows how to approach yet. Um, it seems like a lot of us, um, a lot of us who are of the white race have an experience, we had a completely different life than growing up as a minority. Um, there, there's so many things that we don't realize. And I, it really opened my eyes talking to an Asian American because you don't think about the racism. Uh, now, of course, the last couple of months we've seen more of it, but you don't think about that as much. That seems to be like sort of hidden from view a little bit. Um, we knew about it during the Second World War, but it's not like anything changed in the last 70 years. Nothing's really changed as far as people being racist <laughs> right. against Asians. And yeah. Well, you know, it's funny because, I, you know, we're called beyond race and our initial mission and still is to address racism across all races. Mm -hmm. um, our show to date, um, we've only been live since October, so it hasn't been all that long, has been centered mainly on black and white relations because that's really what's in the news. Right. Um, right. But when the, when uh, with COVID and the onslaught of increased overt violence against Asian Americans was happening. We thought, you know, we have an obligation here to really do some shows about, you know, Asian Americans. And both she and I have reached out to many people, many Asian Americans that we know, and they all have refused to be on the show. They have, I know I don't want to be a part of that. And I finally found one and that person would only do it on the on the condition that they would be completely anonymous. Random Asian person. Really? That's how they wanted to be. 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, so uh, we haven't done one on Asian ra racism. Mm -hmm. I'm mentioning it on your show because you know what? Hey, let us know if you're Asian American and would like to be on our show, please. If you don't mind my, you know, plugging our show on your show. No, I'm, that's why I have you on. Um, that's literally why I have you on. I love plugging other podcasts. I think, you know, I one of the reasons I have a podcast is because I love podcasts. So <laughs> it's fun, fun to have people on that are, awesome. that are doing the same thing, and then I, you know, can relate to the struggles of a podcaster and uh, uh, and are trying to do something about the struggles of of people in America and really in the world. Um, we. America has a very, I mean, obviously has extreme racism, um, but so does uh, so does everywhere else. Um, I think we forget that. Uh, we've we've seen that a little more because of a recent Oprah in interview that we are not the only racist. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I think you know, but I think that um, racism in other countries happens, it definitely happens, but it happens in other degrees. Mm -hmm. um, my experience is that we have a, a heightened form and maybe because we're, you know, maybe we're the United States and we're all, we're, you know, our culture is just sort of out there anyway in people's face and what have you. Um, and everything is bigger in America, right. <laughs> per se. Right. Um, not because, you know, just because people, that's just the American outlook. And so at any rate, I, you know, and I don't think the fact that um, our Second Amendment is being imp um, being um, put to work incorrectly helps the situation either. How's that our for Our Second Amendment <laughs> being put to work incorrectly. That's, yeah, that's, an, um, that's a point of view I share. I don't know. I mean, you just can't. You're about to get tons of hate mail. <laughs> it's well, it's okay. No one listens to this. They. <laughs> it's all my friends. Uh, yeah, I mean, I I even know, uh, not personally. I mean, I don't know them that well. But I've talked to to other people who are who believe in some regulation, but still believe in the Second Amendment, and it's like the Second Amendment doesn't make sense anymore. The the reason that was written doesn't exist. You are not going to have a well organized militia. You're going to have a bunch of insane drunk people in in furry hats with horns breaking into buildings. That's not the <laughs> same thing. <laughs> and I was really shocked and amazed. You forgot beating beating, be, beating their naked chest while and, while and doing beating, it. And yes. That's not a. I mean, that's not what I consider well organized. I was I was actually shocked that no one was was shot, and that really no guns were drawn other than the authorities. Um, shocked and and happy, happily shocked. But uh, wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. The the um. I am someone who doesn't understand where we can go from here. I guess. Uh, like. I'm not against gun regulation, but I do understand how hard it is for anyone to get it passed right now. Um, and again, because the right has extreme right and the left doesn't have extreme left. There's no extreme left government. It doesn't exist. Right. There's slightly left of central and there's central. That's kind of what I was trying to say earlier. There's extreme left. There are, there are conspiracy theorists on the right side. There are people 
in our federal government who don't think we landed on the moon and maybe think the Earth's flat. I can't say for sure, but they might think that. I mean, they uh, they believe. Well, you know, wacky she's theory. blonde. Wacky. Uh, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm talking about you, Marjorie Taylor Greene. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it's just, but she's not the only one. That's the thing. She's the one that's no, the no, most she's vocal. Not. She's the one that's the most out there, but she's not the only one. It. it um, I never thought you know, when I was growing up or even 30 years ago, we would be at this place um, where for one, uh, well, I won't even get into that. It's just, I, I try not to talk politics on my show, even though I, I, oh, I enjoy oops. it. Yeah, I mean, I'm happy to if, if, if it goes there, but it's all, I'm, a, I'm a, obviously of a very strong opinion and that's, um, that you doesn't don't. leave much room for discussion. <laughs> Well, I okay. We can we we can move away from this, but I would like to say that it was never a Saturday in America for me when a public health crisis could become politicized. Oh yes, yeah. I it, I, it should not be like this. Nope. At all. I mean, it no. is a health crisis that we should all be treating with one voice, with unity, and working together to eradicate it, no matter what the sacrifice. I mean, I mean, quite frankly, I mean, here I'm going on a tangent again, but you know, we can't have a World War Three because no one would be behind it. <laughs> well, the great you, know, you talk about the greatest generation yeah. and what they had to give up and. You know, and then you compare it to the pandemic, and I think you, you don't want to wear a mask. That's your big inconvenience. It's really you don't want to get vaccinated, yeah. huh? I, I just don't understand. I, you know, it's funny. I do understand the vaccinations because it's not all, it's not all conspiracy. Well, it is all conspiracy theorists, but some of those conspiracy theorists are from a long, long time ago, where someone made them believe that vaccinations caused all. Um, autism. And the person that said that came out and said later, um, no, I was totally wrong. And I, I was pretty much lying, but that didn't get out. That never came out to the public. The and retractions so never do. They don't, especially when they're years later. So I kind of get that, that that is in people's minds that, Hey, um, vaccines, they might make you sicker and not help you. I've always been paranoid about taking flu vaccines because I usually don't get the flu. I'm not going to die from it. And I've heard that it, you know, people, you usually, a lot of people get sick when they take it. So, but uh, immediately when it was like, okay, a vaccine that's going to make it so I can go out in public without a mask or hug my sisters or, you know, whatever, or go to the grocery store without being paranoid, which is a little nuts for me to be paranoid because I'm in a, an area that doesn't have a lot of, <laughs> of COVID-19. So it's just that the, you know, the news is so huge and overblown that we're all scared to death. And in fact, if my uh, wife got it, it could be devastating. It could be really, really bad. So it was no, it was a no well, I've been I was like, whatever they want, they want to put Johnson and Johnson in my arm. Okay. Tomorrow I'll do it. Yeah, It's yeah. too late. Cause I got Moderna, but <laughs> I, I have the first shot of Moderna and waiting for the second. Yeah, that's where I am. 
and I okay. I got the first shot because now everyone in Oregon, 16 and over, I think, or 18 and over or something, but um, a few weeks before that, they said anyone who's more than 25%, if their body fat is more than 25%, which is pretty much every... <laughs> Like okay, what adult that's every do I American, isn't that's it? Just about every American, just about, just about. Unless, Unless you're on the cover of GQ or Vogue, or or they're a good, you know, or they're a, a strict vegan. Most, <laughs> 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 but yeah, that's just about everyone. So that's when I made the call. And here they're not, they're not asking. I mean, when there's, you know, they said all these underlying conditions, it's not like you make an appointment and they say, so do you have diabetes? You know, there was, there's nothing like that. They're just like, come on in. Let's, let's have a shot. So, yeah, I was very, very, and, but I totally agree. Um, not only did they politicize it, but they succeeded in it. Like people just bought into this, that it's somehow a political yeah. issue. That the the safety of America, that somehow your freedom is being impinged upon. Oh man, yeah, I could go about that. I could go on for a whole show on that. Just that insanity. It's, oh, it's, I could too. So. It's like you can have oh, me. You can have me man. back, and we can talk about all what sorts you, of topics. We'll just talk about <laughs> that. Uh, because yeah, and then you see people being pulled over and shot because they're the wrong color. But their freedom's not being impinged upon. Oh. Well, you know, I, I thought it was really sad. We did, um, we recorded a an episode about the George Floyd trial and uh, before the verdict was out. And this week we um, we just recorded an epilogue to add in the verdict um, before mm -hmm. it gets, um, before it goes public. And... Um, I point out that I think it, there, it is very depressing and sad that a half hour before the verdict, um, police shot and killed a 16-year-old girl in Columbus, Ohio, because she was holding a knife. It was a domestic. I don't know whether you've read about this or heard about it. I've heard Her about it and saw the videos. Ryan. Mm-hmm. Oh, we lost you. We're losing you a little bit. There was a little break up there. Um, sorry about that, um, listeners. The um, hey, no worries. That one is really tough for me, honestly, um, because I saw what was in the video. There's a lot happening really fast. The the cop who shows up on the scene. Uh, I mean, there's an argument to be made for why do police carry guns? Because they, you know, I live in the town where um, a, an organization called Cahoots is. And they're being now sought after nationwide because they're basically um, um, an organization that tries to respond to police calls with mental health professionals. So if there's any calls that they can go to uh, instead of the police, they go. Uh, and they're trying to create that model in other cities. So this was a brawl basically with some teenagers that involved a knife. So it's pretty tough. Uh, for the cop, like I say, maybe he shouldn't carry a gun. But when he showed up, he th he might have thought, uh, I mean, he's got no time to react. No time. And with the amount of uh, shootings going on now and the amount of, uh, you know, mass uh, killings, he might have just thought he had to react. Um, it might be the opposite. It might have been a completely racist response. 
But I just think that we don't really know because that's such a hard situation. I can't imagine being in that situation. I I give you that it's a hard situation, but I would ask you, when is it okay? Any kind of situation like that, you know, the nine one one call said um, sixteen year old or teenager, and said you know yielding a knife, threatening with a knife. So when is the when did it become okay to charge in with a gun? I mean, the officers have tasers. The officers have clubs. Shouldn't the first response be let's try and defuse the situation? It went, you know, and and even if he had a gun and he thought he was protecting himself and thought he was threatened, what about shooting, aiming for the leg, the arm? She was shot in the chest. Yeah, that's an interesting and argument that goes from if you understand police training, uh, I've. I, I know a little bit about police training. It's also this, it's, you can't, you don't ever aim for anything but the middle of the body because most of the time when they fire their guns, most of the shots are a miss. Nobody's that well trained that they can hit something in with adrenaline going. Like they're just not that good a shot. And so he's lucky he didn't shoot anyone else. Um, he's unlucky that it killed her. Um, sh um, I don't disagree that he maybe he should have used a taser. What I'm saying is he got there, this person looked like, in the video it looks like to me she's stabbing somebody. Uh, like she's wielding them, she's going after someone. So he, you know, right. I'm thinking this guy thought, okay, she's gonna kill that person or I need to, sh or I need to fire. That's, that's all I can imagine. Because they don't really, I mean, part of the problem I think is training. They don't have any real training as far as how to subdue a person without shooting them. You know, I, I don't know that that, you and, know what I mean? And, and I would ask you, yeah, right. And I would ask you why? Because if, if they're going to be sent out on those kinds of calls, why don't they have that kind of training? I'd also like to ask you, uh, and this is, you know, this is my show talking, would he have pulled that gun and shot if she was a white girl? And of course, that's a an um, that's always the question. That's always the question. It does. There's a, obviously a far, far more um, people of color, not just black, but every every race, blacks, Hispanics. Um, I don't know about Asians, but there are other minority races that are shot far more often than white. Um, it it can't, I, it's more than can be explained just by neighborhoods because there's plenty of poor white neighborhoods in America, not as much in big cities, but everywhere else there's plenty of poor white neighborhoods. So it can't be. Oh, of course there are. Yeah. So it, you're right. Would it would it been the same reaction uh, if she wasn't? And who? I mean, that's really hard to know. That's really really hard to know. Um, I mean, you can go back in history and look at why the police were create were created why the big police forces were created and um they well, you know it's interesting that you say that <laughs> it's interesting I, I hate to I, I, well because we just this week recorded our very first show on police brutality and, uh -huh. and we go into great detail about how the police in this country was created it was quite illuminating oh good good because i've i've uh i've read some about that so i won't give away the show but <laughs> you, you uh <laughs> 
Well, you can tease uh, it. Uh, yeah, the, basically they were created to put down blacks in black neighborhoods. I mean, the, there was it was to control colored neighborhoods. So that's largely what large police were created for. And unfortunately, what some some departments are still doing. Well, I think that we argue, and I don't think it's some departments. I think it's way more than just some. And I, I, we argue that because that was the actual foundation, mm-hmm. um, that exists in its core today. And so, right. you know, when we talk about police reform, and we talk about, um, or or there's people who talk about defund the police, and there's people who talk about. Um, tearing the system apart i'm i came out a really big believer that we need to tear the entire system apart and build it and build it anew because i don't think any kind of reform layered on top of a foundation of extreme racism is going to solve the problem uh i'm i'm not 100 percent sure of that i'm 90 percent sure of that here's what i i think um ext- really strongly i think this when you say defund the police, you lose sixty percent of Americans, because there are, you got to realize and how many. About Amer- in our show. What's that? Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. I, we we talk about that in our show because it's a terrible name. It's a it terrible really byline, defund. right? Right. It doesn't work, and that, especially for Americans that live in areas that don't see that brutality at all. Like I live in you. I live in a small town in Oregon. But our police largely come from the L.A. Academy, so I know what. Really? Over? Yeah, hmm. yeah. They recruited from L.A. for a long time for some insane reason because obviously it, this is not the same. Uh, I mean, they tra- they don't train them well down. They train them to do certain things. <laughs> <laughs> um, having said that, I've had great uh, in reaction with police in Eugene. And, you know, I've had really good reaction with them. I've seen them defuse a situation. Uh, take somebody to you know help them out rather than just arrest them i've seen this happen someone who has mental problems so they they they're not it's not i don't think they're all bad i think there are some that are trying to do a good job but um but i agree with you in that yeah fundamentally that's probably true trying to reform an organization that's so broken um how do you do that the other hand is you just lose so many people um, the the people that you probably need to have to have listening to your your arguments and your conversations when you just keep yelling defund the police because I I know it, that's not that scary to me because I understand it but that's another one of those issues that the byline doesn't say what you're really saying you know exactly you know, and, right. and you know that goes right back to what we were saying before about how the left does a terrible good job of packaging what they're about. <laughs> right. Because right. you can, you, you, you just know that the far right would never have come up with a misnomer like to fund the police. And we were like handing them a gift. Hey, go run with this. Make our <laughs> lives miserable. That's true. Yeah. That's kind of my point. <laughs> That's kind of my point with defund the police is, yeah, you, you, we just went, uh, oh gosh, it, that's exactly my point. It's like, yeah, that only helps the other side, the people that, you know, are not going to listen to you. It's really unfortunate. 
And I don't know who came up with it, but they they just won't. It's still being touted as you know the, and it's more. It's almost like a battle cry. I guess that's what I think is bad about it. It's like a battle cry, and that's. I don't know if that's a battle we're going to win because there's too many scared. I mean, America has been one thing. America has been really good at is making people afraid, and if people are afraid, they think that the police are going to help them. Whether or not that's true is, you know, a whole other story. But, uh, yeah, that's a tough one. Well, convincing people to come along with you is such a nuanced task. And you have to get, you have to package it just the right way. And I hate to sound, you know, all, you know, brandy <laughs> about branding and what have you, uh, you know, in, in commercial. But, you know... It, I'm a gay man, and um, the fight for marriage equality was long and hard, and really, honestly, only took a turn and for the better when someone thought, you know what, this is about this is about being able to love the person that you love, and when the message changed away from marriage equality and what have you, and and it became love is love other people came along. We were able to get people who had been previously against it. And it was a message that people could wrap their head around and go, oh, I never really thought about it that way. I'm preventing mm -hmm. somebody who loves somebody from being together. And that was a winning message. And I think that the if we want to actually do substantive change for law enforcement, I think we need to come up with a message like that. That actually right. just sends it home to people. That that's a little more racist is racist, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I don't know. I mean I, even we're thirty four episodes into our show and it is amazing to me how many people are racist and don't believe that they are racist. They don't see it in themselves. Um, and I, you know, I, I've said this on, on our show a couple times now, and I'll tell you too, it's like, you know, I have friends and family members who have listened and have told me, why do you hate white people? Oh, geez. Oh gosh. Well, and, and, but I can relate. I find, well, it, 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 I don't feel offended by that because I know who I am. So I'm secure enough in, in the fact that I I know I don't hate myself or my race, but I think that our race in particular is a, because we have been the predominant race in the United States, needs to be not just gently woken up, but we need to be shaken. Eh, let's try that again. <laughs> we need to be shaken awake. Um, and, you know, that moment in uh, Moonstruck comes to mind where, you know, Olympia Dukakis slaps Cher and says, snap out of it. That's what we need as white people in this country because we need to understand that it has been predominantly a white country ever since the country was founded. And if you grow up white and you grow up in a white neighborhood um, and are rather insulated, you are not exposed to the challenges that other races go through in this country. Yeah. And I, if you're not exposed to it, if you're not challenged to it, you don't even know it exists. So, it's I, like, you I, know, 
Go ahead. I agree 100%. There, I didn't know it existed for the first, I don't know, probably until I was in junior high or something. And I mean, I, we saw it in history books a little bit. Um, I didn't encounter a lot of culture until I moved to Los Angeles. Uh, I do, I wasn't, um, I didn't care what color my friends were. That never bothered me because I was uh, luckily in a very op you know, open-minded family. Um, but that was just pure luck. Uh, luck of the draw, I guess. That that's <laughs> that's a big part of it too. Is how you how you're raised. Because another thing that I find really interesting about racism is that it has to be taught. You know, we're seeing these little memes and little videos all the time of kids playing together. They don't see that. You know, kids don't see race. It it has to be taught. This is not something you are born with at all it's something that has to do i read an interesting book called sapiens i don't know if you've ever seen that book but it's basically about the evolution of of man through the last hundred thousand years or so and what it took for us to go from tribes to living in cities with millions of people and the different things that we had to adjust in our brain and the different myths we had to come up with you know like the government the myth of government you know the myth of 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 boundaries mm -hmm. like state boundaries all these different myths and um early on a long long time ago and this is stuck with us always is that in order to uh for a tribe to survive and this included tribes a thousand years ago that were much much bigger uh they had to make an enemy out of the other the other tribe whether this was uh, right. I, you know, in, in the early days, it, the tribes were all the same color, um, but they were had different names. And then, even even in the in Europe, in Europe for a long time, the wars were largely based on uh, against different uh, countries. So you couldn't necessarily tell them apart until they started talking. They all talked different. They all had a different accent. And but yeah, that's just it. It's been ingrained for a long, long time, but it still has to be taught. It has to be taught from a very early age, because even if you try and teach it later, I don't think people would understand. You know, I don't think the, a person would understand it. Yeah, I think if you were trying to teach it as an adult to somebody who had never been exposed to it, they'd be scratching on their head and saying, "What the hell are you talking about?" Exactly. Or I, 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 I wonder if even a, a a young, you know, someone who's, who's ten to twelve would understand it. Would be like, "What are you trying to what? But it's, what? Why do we hate people?" But it's subtle condition. It's yeah, it's subtle conditioning. You know, it's mm -hmm. the it's the parent who grabs their white child by the hand when there are a lot of black children around and says, No, come over here and, and pulls them away. And it sends a subliminal message that they're not supposed to socialize with, with those people. It's true. It's, it's and a there's very, probably very cunning and subtle evolution. Yeah. And even I mean there's there's probably even less subtle things when when someone's driving their lowrider down the street and the you know the parent um, drives away real fast. Um, I mean that's that's a different situation, but it's the same thing. It's the same thing. The, the, the kid in the car is going to think, okay, that's to stay away from people that look like that and drive those kind of cars. Yeah, exactly. I mean, when I when I was. We have to be roughly around the same age, and I'm. When I was growing up, it was my. I remember my parents drilling into me deeply that 
you know, anyone with a tattoo was from the wrong side of the tracks. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah, that's changed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, has it? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, and and I can understand that at an intellectual level, but it, but I, I still look at tattoos and think, whoa, it doesn't really mean that. I mean, it, it just always surprises me. Um, I'm, I personally would probably never get a tattoo because all I can think about is, what are these pe- what are these young people going to look like when they're 70 and all that skin is sagging? <laughs> it's that's what it's, I want to know. It's funny cuz yeah, <laughs> when I grew up, I'm a little bit older than you and tattoos were people who'd been in the service, right? And they were drunk one right, day, got right. a tattoo, that was a big one. And then living in Los Angeles, tattoos were, were from prison. And the right. tattoos that we're emulating now that are so fashionable and so huge and all the big stars have them are still emulating gang tattoos and prison tattoos. And I don't, sometimes I wonder if people get this. It's like, what are you doing? <laughs> um, some, of it's, some of it's really nice art, but I'm the same thing. For one, are you a masochist wanting your entire arm tattooed? But also, uh, do you really know what you're, what you're, what you're symbolizing, what this symbolizes. It, it's it's interesting. I I hope I live long enough to see some of these people and their tattoos <laughs> and being able to ask, what was that? <laughs> <laughs> what was that anyway? <laughs> uh, it's a total different deal with someone like The Rock who has tribal tattoos because he's from a, a, yep. you know, yes, from a tribal right. nation. He has tribal tattoos. Um, but yeah, when people go get rap tattoos because their favorite rapper did it, it's like wow do you know what you're doing <laughs> yeah. or the girlfriend's yeah. name who ended up cheating on them and they're not around anymore and it's there and i know that you can get rid of them sort of but oh i don't know that's an awful lot of work and an awful lot of money for <laughs> i'd rather that... spend my money elsewhere personally <laughs> yeah that's another thing that i never thought about um very much, but then I talked to somebody that was saying how much their tattoos were, and I just went, "Oh my god, that! Whoa! Now I really don't want a tattoo. It is, uh, you know, wow, serious money. Wow, yeah. yeah, yeah. They're spending a lot, a lot of money on that stuff. Um, it's absolutely crazy. Uh, yeah. Well." <laughs> Well, we've been uh, we've been going <laughs> going on for a while now. We're off off the uh, off the rails here. The um, I probably should think about wrapping this up. Uh, it's been really it's been awesome having you on the show. I mean, really awesome. Uh, well, thank you, you. Yeah, you're really fun to talk to. Really fun to talk to. And again, I think that what you guys are doing is fantastic. It is. Um, what's the name of the podcast again? Beyond race, beyond race. On I just all, wanted... anywhere you get on your podcast, all podcast platforms. Oh, there yes, you go, exactly. all podcast platforms. And we're on, and we're Beyond Race podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and less so on YouTube because I just couldn't keep up. <laughs> <laughs> now, what about uh, Twitch? What about um, uh, what's that other one? No Maybe. Twitch, no TikTok, because really TikTok. our our TikTok. our 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 podcast doesn't really lend itself to TikTok. <laughs> no podcast, <laughs> uh, and it's yeah, TikTok is 
widely known to be one of the most um, unsecure places to put things or to be a part of. So no one's going to listen to me, but stay off TikTok. It's not a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're not going to. They're not going to listen to you, Joel. <laughs> they're not. Everyone loves it so much. And I've been amused by many TikTok videos, but I'm not on TikTok. No, that's enough. Enough of that. All right, so... (laughs) (laughs) You've been listening to... Were you still talking? This is Joel Albrecht, and my guest today has been Brian Gillette. He has his own podcast. It'll be in the show notes. Some of the stuff we talked about might be in the show notes as well. We'll get more information there. Thank you so much for listening. This has been a really great conversation. Uh, it's um, We talked a little about everything. We talked about things I normally don't talk about on the show, which is always good to talk about. It's a good thing to talk about. So thanks a lot. Uh, hope you uh, hope you like the show. Don't be shy. Share it. Share it with your friends. And uh, as I always say, be good to each other. And be good to yourselves. <laughs>